0: Good evening, everybody. Thank you very much for coming here. My name is Marta Costas. I am Director of Grandfair and an alumna of the London School of Economics. Thank you to everybody for making it this evening it 's a pleasure to be here to welcome Shaw Womond. She is one of the most prominent female entrepreneurs in the UK and she 's also the, lead- the driving force behind Smarter. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with Smarter, it is the leading platform for um, support for business owners and entrepreneurs. And it was set up at a very difficult time, 2009, right after the recession, and it has gone a long way to support entrepreneurship in the UK. In recognition for all her services, uh, Shah received an MB for uh, support to entrepreneurship and business owners. And uh, she's also uh, an, alumna, an alumna of the London School of Economics, so uh, a very good name to be associated with the school. Today, Shah is going to be talking to us about how to apply the Italian economist Vifredo um, be- Pareto law of the vital few to lead a more successful life, a more productive life, to basically get more. Um, this event marks um, a very important milestone for her as well. It is the publication of her latest book, which I've had the pleasure to read. It was very good. It's called Do Less, Get More, How to Work Smart and Live Life Your Own Way. And it's fantastic because you can really apply it to all domains of life. For those of you who um, want to use Twitter, we have a hashtag for the event. It's hashtag LSE Shah. That's hashtag LSE Shah.
1: Wow, I get my own hashtag. (laughs) Awesome.
0: (laughs) I would ask you, though, to turn your mobile phones to silent uh, so that you don't disrupt the event. This event, by the way, is being recorded, and hopefully, if there are no technical difficulties, it should be available as a podcast. Also remind you that uh, after the event there will be after the lecture, there will be a chance to ask your questions so there will be about thirty to forty minutes for q and a and then, for those of you who don 't um, don 't own it yet, do get a copy of the book it 's on sale outside the venue, and there will be a book signing right after the event here on stage. So, without further ado, please join me in welcoming Shah to the stage.
1: Thank you. Okay, so the first question is, I, I don't actually just have to stand here the whole time, do I? Like, I, I, I need to walk. Good, right. Okay, so, um, good evening, guys. How are you? So, hands up, uh, those of you who are currently, who, is there anybody here who, I know term hasn't started yet, but do we have any current students here? a handful past students awesome anybody here running their own business anybody here who wants to run their own business at some point in the future aha that's where all the hands went up okay Um, I know the title says how to apply the 80 20 rule for increased productivity happiness and freedom and that's what I'm supposed to be talking about tonight but I'm I'm pretty sure that this talk is going to go off on multiple tangents, because, well, that's kind of a reflection of my life. It was quite interesting. When you leave university, unless you come back to do a master's or a PhD, or you come back to actually work here as as a lecturer, you don't really have too much reason to come back, right? And I haven't been back for a very long time. In fact, the last time I was back here... Was wow, probably about 20 years ago when I was working for the then super middleweight boxing champion Chris Eubank. And I sat at the back where you guys are on the bottom here. And Chris was on the stage. And uh, I brought him into LSE at the time. He was probably the most famous sporting personality in the UK. And I tell you this because you just never know how your life is going to unfold. And so I walked up here and thought, I was like, you have all that déjà vu, that nostalgia, going. Oh my God, the last time I did this. And then I walked out, and I saw Wright's cafe, and I thought, Oh my God, all those hours when I was supposed to be in lectures and I was actually in there having cappuccinos instead. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about my time at LSE, and in fact, I want to tell you a little bit about my story before LSE, because I think it's a lesson for. A new demographic of people. And maybe I just started a little bit earlier than the new millennials. I think our attitude to work has changed entirely over the last 10 years. And I think, I hope that maybe something good came out of the recession, which was that more and more people realized that actually nothing is certain. Those big jobs in the city. Those big banking jobs aren't necessarily certain. So unless you actually really, really want to do that, maybe there are better things that you could do with your life. Maybe there are things to do with your life that could make you almost as much money, maybe more money, but bring you a lot more happiness. Now, I'm not suggesting that all bankers hate their jobs, but I am suggesting, particularly from universities like this, there was a tendency to believe that we fell into a certain category. And that category was that we were lucky enough to be bright enough to come here, that we should therefore have an obligation to go and do a serious profession. And I'm hoping that day by day, that's breaking down. And in fact, what our obligation is, is to fulfill our passions, and to understand our purpose and our why in life. And whether that is to be a banker, or it's to set up an NGO, or it's to set up your own business, or it's to become an author, or in my case, a combination of all of those at different points in my career, that that's our obligation. Our obligation, first and foremost, is to find our own path. Now, I come from um, quite an unusual background. You see, before I came to LSE, I was actually expelled from school. I uh, I went to a state school in Hertfordshire, and I think it would be fair to say that I hadn't really found the right school for me. <laughs> and I got into an awful lot of trouble. And there was one point where I was in a history lesson. You see, contrary to my accent, I grew up in California until I was 11. And at that point in time, if you grew up in the States, particularly in California, the American Civil Rights Movement was a big part of history and a big part of the lessons. And so I felt like I was, you know, not necessarily an aficionado on the Civil Rights Movement, but listening to my teacher's lesson, I certainly felt I knew a lot more than her. And when I tried to share this with her in the class, that maybe that rather than just talking about Martin Luther King, she might want to also reflect on the fact that there was Louis Farrakhan and there was Malcolm X and there was the Black Panthers and there was Huey Newton. And actually that all parts of this represented a monumental shift in American policy. And that what she was actually teaching was a very one-sided view and actually quite a distilled view that she felt was relevant to a bunch of 14-year-old girls. She didn't really land very <laughs> well. And given this was probably my fifth warning, I, I soon found myself on an expulsion. It was a temporary two-week expulsion as long as I agreed to the terms of my remission to come back to school. To cut a long story short on why this is so important about education and being here today and why I'm so proud to be here tonight, I was very, very lucky. I grew up in a very poor family. We lived in a hostel for homeless families for nearly two years, which meant that I lived in a 10-foot by 12-foot room with my mom and my younger brother. And I don't say this for anybody to feel sorry for me, but I say it because sometimes we think about our own personal situations and we come up with all kinds of excuses why we can't do something. And... I learned very quickly that that wasn't going to rub with my mum, that despite the fact we had no money, we had other things in abundance. And her belief in me, despite how much trouble I got into, made me resolve that I was going to turn things around. So just when it was coming up to my GCSEs, I started to apply for scholarships to private schools. And I was very fortunate, and I won a scholarship to the City of London School for Girls just down the road. and that was a pivotal moment for me in my in my life you know I could look back and say now it's probably the start of my career to be honest because for the first time somebody in a position of authority truly believed in me and despite the fact that I'd been expelled from school previously the headmistress Lady France I thought she was so posh that she probably wouldn't ever even allow me through the doors of her school and yet I realized that at that point my perceptions of success and people changed because I looked at her and I judged her. I judged her by how she looked, I judged her by how she spoke, and I presumed that she was judging me. But actually, she wasn't judging me at all. Instead, she did the opposite. She looked at my track record and then she looked at the results I had on taking the entrance exam. And she said, I'll do a deal with you. My first deal. She said, I'll do a deal with you. I think you've been misunderstood and I'm prepared to take a risk on you. If you promise me from the day you enter this school, you will turn over a new leaf." And from that day forward, I became literally the ideal pupil. Because for the first time in my academic life, somebody believed in me. She believed in me so much that when it came to applying for universities, she had me applying for Oxford and Cambridge and all the universities that had the the subjects that I wanted to study. And of course, LSE. And I remember when we got the results back in in, in terms of uh, our offers, and I'd been accepted into Oxford. And I looked at it, and my heart sank. My heart sank because I knew that that's where my mum would want me to go. But I didn't want to go to Oxford. You see, from the moment... I first started to think about going to university, there was only ever one place that I wanted to go, and that was here. And using my chutzpah and my entrepreneurial spirit, I remember coming here six months before you had to start applying for places, and I remember going to see the head of admissions, and I remember being really annoying and just hanging around. I'd done my research, I knew who she was, and I was just hanging around for her to come out. When she came out, I said, excuse me, I'm thinking of applying, and she just looked at me, sorry, <laughs> I said, I'm thinking of applying here, you know, this year for, for, for next year. And she said, okay, well, what can I help you with? I said, well, I'm a little bit worried. I said, I'm currently doing three A-levels, and I know that you have to get certain grades to get in here. I said, I've taken the entrance exams for Oxford, which means that as long as you pass it, they don't really care what exams you, results you end up with. I said, I'm a bit worried about my German a level." Right, yeah, me and German doesn't really mix. (laughs) And she said to me, well, what do you think you're going to get? And I said, well, I think, you know, it's possible I'm going to end up with AAC instead of ABB or AAB. And I know that you wouldn't accept anybody in who's got a C. And I said, so... But what if I got two A's? What if I got like A stars and I just got a C in my German? We ended up having this conversation for about 40 minutes. Me telling her all the reasons why I wanted to come here and telling her how confident I was that I was going to get into Oxford. And I really didn't want to have to accept the place at Oxford because I couldn't get into LSE with a C in my German. The best part was when I opened the offer from LSE. And the offer was A-B-B or A. A-B. A C. Now she told me afterwards that I was the only pupil that entire year who had been given an alternative offer and she said the reason was is that I showed so much tenacity and determination that I wanted to come here that if I was to show that tenacity when I was actually studying that I was exactly the type of student that they wanted. And so my mum might have had a lot of temporary hiccup around me not wanting to go to Oxford and choosing to come here, but I knew from the very beginning that this was the path for me. And this is very much where my career kicked off. So I'm going to go through a little bit about my story. So you'll see here, this is, this is where my career kind of started. So imagine this, imagine yourself at LSE studying economics, now imagine you're coming up to the end of your second year, so you're just about to start your final year, and you think to yourself, well, you know what? I haven't got enough work to do already. I mean, I work in every Saturday and Sunday and all through every holidays, so let me just add something else to the plate. I've always been a mad boxing fan, so I wrote to Chris Eubank. I had a, I'd won a competition to write for Cosmopolitan magazine whilst I was studying here, and so I wrote him a letter telling a kind of like a white lie, which was that I'd been commissioned by them to interview him. (laughs) Just a tiny, tiny exaggeration of the truth. And to cut a very long story short, he accepted the offer, to which there was equal parts of complete elation. Oh, my God, how amazing to... Oh, fuck, what am I going to go and tell the editor at Cosmo? Again, very, very fortunate. A, A lot of my story is about... The importance of people in your life, and I hope the importance of you in other people's lives because I certainly look back and realize how many people have made such a difference to me. In fact, if you follow me on Twitter, you'll see that I actually tweeted Chris Eubank tonight and told him that I was about to go on stage and that the last time I was here was with him, and that I'll never ever forget the break that he gave me because when I interviewed him, he was being interviewed. Uh, By a very well-known journalist who will remain nameless after 45 minutes. She stormed out of the interview now He mistakenly thought that I was a full-time journalist at Cosmopolitan So he turns around to me and he says to me Shah What just happened and I said in my lovely 21 year old naivety well Chris Why on earth did you accept that interview you knew who she was you knew her style? You've got nothing to promote who on earth set that up for you He picks up the phone Barry What the fuck did you set this interview up for me for? And we started talking. And he said, Do you want a job? And I thought, Well, I could either work in Joseph on a Saturday, and I could work in the pizza restaurant on a Sunday, or I could work with Chris Eubank. Oh, tough choice, right? However, I had absolutely no idea whatsoever what the job was. So I said, Yes. And he said, Great. What's your phone number? So I wrote my phone number down and he said, OK, I'll, I'll give you a call later. OK, so I went home. I had a little tiny. Um, anybody here live in North London? OK, anybody here live in Finsbury Park or ever lived in Finsbury Park? OK, a couple. So I, I lived on Upper Tollington Road in a little tiny, tiny studio flat. It was hilarious because by the time I got home, this was pre mobile phone days, probably about six months before mobile phones came out. I had a message on my answer machine and it told me I had to be at Gatwick Airport the next morning and I needed to take enough stuff for 24 hours and he would tell me everything when I got there. Now, my boyfriend at the time had got home before me. <laughs> and he had paid the message. <laughs> and he came, I came in and he went, you've got a message. I said, oh cool, who's it from? Chris Eubank. Oh great, what did he say? you're to pack an overnight bag. (laughs) Fortunately, I had a very understanding boyfriend who is still one of my best friends to this day. And the next day, I rocked up at Gatwick Airport. I got on a plane. I flew to Manchester, got off the plane, found myself at Old Trafford, Manchester United's uh, football grounds, and I found out that I was now responsible for putting on the biggest fight that had ever taken place in this country. I became... The world's only licensed female boxing manager and promoter I went on to put on 25 world title fights I know I look just like a boxing promoter right just what you'd expect I went on to travel the world work with Don King work with HBO and Showtime in the US with ITV and the BBC here and I just think to myself when I look back I think how did I get so lucky you know, sometimes you look back and you can, you can focus on all the hard times you had. But I think that those times are often our opportunity to turn that adversity into a strength and into a power to drive forward. And certainly for me, I'm a massive believer, as you're about to see, in, in, in the power of synchronicity and having that real core belief in yourself and being prepared to do things differently and to take risks with what you want to do with your life. Because at that point, everybody was trying to persuade me that what I really wanted to do was to go and work for JP Morgan or Citibank or Deutsche Bank. But actually, I couldn't think of anything worse. And when I started working in boxing, well, it was pretty obvious where my heart and my passion, I would rather have fun and earn money than just earn money. And so when Chris retired, I was very lucky to meet this guy, Sir James Dyson. Anybody own a Dyson? Anybody owned one previously? I got super lucky in this situation so what happened here this is my career It's kind of like a whole series of random coincidences so Chris retired and then a mutual friend had been called in to see James for one meeting for two hours during which James asked him for his opinion and he said to my friend was actually my friend's dad he said Ken do you know anybody who might be able to help us build a brand build our brand from from scratch because by the way at this point he was working from his home Nobody knew who he was. So Ken said, actually, I think you, you might like my friend's daughter, sure. she's, you know, she's been working with Chris Eubank, he's just retired, she's about to set up her own agency, you should meet. So, cut a long story short, I met James, and we became fast friends, and he gave me the best MBA you could ever do anywhere. Stanford, Harvard, Yale, even LSE, has nothing on working with this man, hands on, for five years. We started around a kitchen table. There was five of us around a kitchen table and 20 engineers in the back garden. They were building the prototypes and we were creating the brand. And I'm sure lots of you know this story, but just in case, it's a real lesson in belief, in tenacity, in engineering, in beauty, in design, and how you combine all of those things to create a billion-dollar company. You see, James was turned down by every single bank he went for finance and every bank told him that the idea was stupid nobody would ever buy a vacuum cleaner without a bag so <laughs> right never so what did he do he resorted to the only thing he could do next was he went to his competitors to Miele, to Electrolux to Hoover and he tried to partner with them and do a joint venture and potentially license his patent and come out with a new range under their bigger brand company. What happened? Well, the MD of Hoover told him in a letter that his product was shit. Those words, exactly. He framed it in his office. Those words were shit. Well, that product is shit, and no one will ever buy it. The only thing he had was the technology. And he spent years trying to find a way to bring it to life. And eventually, the only way that he could do that was through an American company called Amway. Anybody here heard of Amway? It's it's a big multi-level marketing company out of the US. Huge billion dollar company. So they agreed to pay him for his patent to license it from him. And what they would do was for a certain period of time, they'd be able to produce the product under their own name, which they did. And then when the contract came to an end, they told him that they didn't want to renew it anymore. It didn't work. So he went back to square one. Apart from, a year later, he walked into a Costco in Virginia and found an Amway cleaner on sale with his technology. So they had infringed his patent, and the only thing that he could do was take them to court. So he took them to court in his hometown or in their hometown and he had no money. So he had to sign over his family house, which was just a regular house in Bath. He was not the millionaire or billionaire that he is today. That level of dedication and determination as an entrepreneur and a businessman is extraordinary. No matter how brave and bold I think I might be, in the same situation with three kids, after everybody has told me that my product is shit, I'm not sure that I would have had the balls to have taken our way to court in their hometown but he did and he won a 3 million dollar lawsuit and that 3 million dollars was the only funding external funding that that company has ever received and today James owns 100% of the company so you think back if he'd made different decisions he would have had a very different outcome he he might have never launched his own product under his own brand name it might have always been you know the little poor cousin of hoover or amelia or electrolux but he stuck to his guns and he persevered and today james is one of the very few sterling billionaires to have made it from scratch so i think that i was incredibly fortunate to have done my MBA with somebody who I consider to be not just a friend and a mentor, but one of the best business brains, certainly one of the best engineers and designers that, that this country has ever seen. And I really, could I have a glass of water, please? I, I really appreciate it as I grew in my own person and my own entrepreneurial flair started to come out and recognizing that I wanted to do my own thing. After five years, I realized that no matter how much i loved working with james i still had no equity in the company i was paid more than my bankers i really really respected this about james as soon as james started to earn really serious money he started to pay really serious money to everybody who gave him 110 percent so whilst my friends were working in the standard careers in the city i was doing an mba and being paid something ridiculous, like twice as much as they were for working in the city. But as a result of that, and it wasn't really the money, it was the respect and the admiration and the camaraderie camaraderie that we all had, I probably worked 28 hours a day. And I was happy for 28 hours of those days doing it. And I recognized in every moment the opportunity that I was being given. But after five years, I realized that actually, I wanted to go and do something myself with his black with his blessings and his backing and i realized when i look back how fortunate i had been to have crossed paths with so many different people and to have so many different people trust in me way before certainly on paper there was any reason for them to do so you know when you're young and you're just starting out it's just you're just a promise You're telling people what you know, what you believe that you can do, but somebody has to believe in that. And when people believe in that, it's up to us to over-deliver on it. And I was so grateful for the many men and women who had given me incredible opportunities that what I wanted to do with Smarter, which is the company and the website that we discussed at the beginning, was... To allow other people, no matter where they came from, no matter what their backgrounds were, to connect with other small businesses and entrepreneurs. And we ended up interviewing almost every successful entrepreneur you could ever think of. And we have over a thousand interviews where you can hear you know, how companies like Innocent have been set up and Presse Manger and what went wrong and you know, when Luke Johnson set up Pizza Express and then he went on to do Patisserie Valerie and all the different sectors and markets. So that actually, Not just get an academic education, but hopefully I could help people with a theoretical, practical one too. And we ended up growing to become the largest website in the UK for entrepreneurs and small businesses, with around half a million uh, people visiting the website every single month. And for me, that that was my absolute core passion. And as Marta said, I'm very grateful that at the beginning of this year, I was awarded... An MBE from the Queen for my services to business and enterprise. Now when you come from where I come from and you grew up in a hostel for homeless families, the last place that you ever think you're gonna find yourself is having tea in Buckingham Palace with the Queen. Doesn't really work out that way. What I was most grateful for though wasn't the award itself, it was what came with it and what came with it was an invitation for me to bring three people with me. And I bought my 90-year-old grandma. Now, in her generation, meeting the Queen... is like E.T. coming home. <laughs> I, I cannot, cannot just put into words... She, she literally didn't stop crying when I told In fact, when I opened the letter, it was quite funny, so I get home quite late at night, and the letter's here. It's got two stamps on it, and for some bizarre reason, one of the stamps over here looks like it says HMRC. But obviously, I just read it really quickly, and it didn't say HMRC. It said, you know, HM instead of HMRC. And I was like, oh, Jesus Christ, another tax bill. Right, I'll just leave that. And I made myself a coffee. It's now about 11 o'clock. I thought, right, I've got to go and open it. So I went and opened it, and I was like, oh, my God. The first thing I did was pick up the phone and call my name. I said, Nan, you've got to go out and buy a dress. She said, sorry. She said, you've just woken me up. It's 11 o'clock at night. I said, I know, I know, but I'm telling you now, we've got to go shopping and go and buy a dress. She said, sure. You can't be drunk because you don't drink, and you don't smoke, so you can't be smoking some wacky-backy. So what are you doing? So I said to her, well, wow, I've got something to tell you. I said, are you listening? So I started to tell her, and she started crying her eyes out because for her, it was just such a monumental occasion just in the whole family i was the first one in my family to ever actually go to university and to be able to take my nan who's 90 my mum, and then my nine-year-old son all together four generations was just the most incredible experience and so i just feel truly grateful for for all the opportunities that life has presented to me and i hope one of the lessons that, that i can share with you today is that When those opportunities come along, even if you feel scared in the moment, the only thing you can ever do is grab them with both hands and run in a forward direction. Because we're all going to make mistakes, all of us, but surely it's better to make mistakes doing something that you absolutely love and adore. Surely it's better to make mistakes and, and learn, so that when you look back at your life and the things that you've done, you think, wow, I lived my life well and my whole journey started from this place right here. I went on to have the number one best-selling book in WH Smith's entire history so you can see when I said you you know do you want to be a banker do you want to set up an NGO do you want to become an author you could do all of those things because when you look at my career I've pretty much at every moment decided Where does my passion lie? What do I really want to do? Right, that's it. I'm going to go do that. I'm going to go become the first ever, I'm going to become the world's only licensed female boxing manager and promoter. Right, tick that box, done that, love doing that. What am I going to do now? Right, I'm going to go and create a global brand that nobody's ever heard of. Right, I've done that, what am I going to go and do now? Actually, do you know what? I have to be really honest. Right from the time I was 14, I always wanted to write books. But I didn't think it was a real career. And this is one of the limiting beliefs that we can end up with. And the limiting belief is I thought creative people couldn't make real money. Has anybody else ever thought that? Yeah? A couple of ladies at the back put their hands up very quickly. But now imagine if J.K. Rowling had been your mum or Steven Spielberg had been your dad. Would we grow up to believe that creative people couldn't make real money? Hell no. But I did, so what I thought I had to do was create this business that had, you know, VC backers and a board of directors and 50 staff and turnovers of 6.8 million in its first three years. And then I had to do this and I had to do that and I had to plan for an IPO. When actually, I wanted to be the creative person, creating the content and sharing my knowledge and my experiences with as many people as I could. But I couldn't quite figure out how you made money doing that. And then I realized it's not actually from writing books, but it's what you do with the platform that you're given from doing so. And certainly Smarter was a big part of that. But my first book, Stop Talking, Start Doing, was the number one best-selling business book in WH Smith for 14 months in a row. For my first book. Having never written a book ever before. And I think that the lesson there is that so often we tell ourselves stories about what we can and what we can't do. And, well, I don't know if I should do that, because if I do that, maybe it will work, but maybe it won't work. And I decided, like most things in my life, that the only way that you can figure that out is actually just by doing it. So I wrote it, and I thought, well, I need to take my own medicine. I've wanted to write a book for ages, so I'm going to stop talking and start doing it and actually get writing it and write my book. <laughs> and yes, I had a few celebrity followers. That's 50 cent. And he's reading my book. Not what you expect every day, but it certainly helped with book sales, because I can't remember how many Twitter followers he's got now, but he had at least five million at the time, so this was probably, this was three years ago. And he just loved the book. We were at a very small private event, and somebody gave him the book. Like, I have... some some great wing women who who are great champions for me and they went and gave him the book and he picked it up and it's just like one of those moments when everything falls into place and he happened to flick it open on the one page where there was a picture of Muhammad Ali and Fraser in the ring and he's a mad boxing fan in fact he's also a promoter so the moment that he opened it up he's like what why have you got boxing oh yes well what Shaw hasn't told you is that she was the only licensed female boxing promoter and she worked with Don King for five years Really? And he sat and said, "Okay." So we end up with this big half-hour conversation, and he said, "Right, I'm going to tweet this out. I think, we, I, I genuinely, I think we made like an extra three thousand book sales off the back of it, right? With, with a single tweet. I, you know, he's definitely not Floyd. May, I don't know if any of you are boxing fans, but um, there's a very successful boxer called Floyd Mayweather, who um, is rather sadly very proud of the fact that he can't read." Uh, which I think is really kind of weird. 50, on the other hand, is nothing like that. He's, uh, he's actually written his own book. Uh, it's called The 50th Law with a guy called Robert Greene. Sold millions of copies. And I think what's interesting here is just again game where those opportunities come about. So this is my second book, which we're going to talk about today, Do Less, Get More. And this is really fundamentally based on those principles of Pareto on the 80-20 rule, which, as all of us in LSE here should know, the Pareto Principle is that in most instances, 80% of a business's profits or revenues will come from 20% of its customers or clients. And you can apply that pretty much to all aspects of business. But I looked at it and tried to broaden the appeal or to broaden the lessons that I learned from a pure economic standpoint from studying here having a true depth of knowledge of economics but actually what did that mean to the general public how could I take that and convey it in a way that could reach more people so I want to just go through how I've ended up doing the things that I have. And conventional wisdom would tell you that the way to achieve more in life, whether it's more happiness or more money or more success in your career or more promotions, is that you actually have to do more, more, and more. I just think that's total and utter bollocks. I think we are fed this and led to believe this simply because it's the way that things have always been done. But the world changes, technology changes, everything changes. The way to get more, whatever you consider more to be, and I don't just consider that to be a monetary gain. To me, more is about my whole entire life, more happiness, more health, more time. And of course, a bit more money. But the way you do it isn't by doing more. It's actually by doing less. And I learned this the hard way because... I had kind of fallen into the trap of being constantly busy. And I almost wore it like a badge of honor. You don't have to put your hands up to this one, but just have a think for a moment. Whether you've ever been guilty of telling somebody, when they ask you how you are, of telling them how tired you are, how stressed you are, how much work you've got to do, what time you've got to get up in the morning to finish that report, and secretly, somewhere, deep down, it validates you, just a tiny bit. Would anybody agree with that once in a while? It makes us feel good that we are needed and that we're busy and that we're, you know, we're, we're that cog in the wheel that makes everything work. But when you're trapped, it's like being in a hamster wheel and you have to find ways to get off. And I decided that the only way I could do this, because I was earning more and more money, and I was gaining more and more of those material possessions, but the way that I was doing it was by putting in more and more hours. And so I stopped, and I thought to myself, there has to be a different way of doing this. And I genuinely thought back to my time here, and I thought back to the Pareto principle, and I thought, wow, I wonder if that actually really works, right? (laughs) Does it really work, or was it just a theory? And I started to apply it to every aspect of my life by doing less. And what I found was that by doing less, but by doing it better, I'm not saying I suddenly woke up and decided I was going to be lazy and not do anything, but what I did was I started to focus on what really mattered. Where did I get real results? So if I went running for an hour, would I get the same results as if I'd done high-intensity training for 25 minutes? If I was working on a business proposal, would well, I get the same results by trying to write presentations to ten clients, instead of focusing on the three that I really wanted? The same is true across every area of your life. I was, I've been very fortunate, we've had tons of great publicity for the book. and One of the, the, the best bits was when I was asked to come on to ITV this morning, and do an interview with Eamon Holmes. And He loved the book so much, he kept me on for seven minutes, and seven minutes on primetime TV (laughs) makes a really big difference. And he asked me what was my favorite principle, and I said, well, this is a, a little bit controversial, but I think that all people, all work, all things are not exactly created equal, so what do I mean? Well, it's not that, you know, you're better than the person next to you, but if we were to be honest with ourselves, and we were to look at our social circle, at our friends, at our family, at the people that we spend our time with, I pretty much guarantee that almost all of us will derive 80% of our joy, our pleasure, our love, our excitement, our encouragement from 20% of the people. But what happens is we get so busy and we have so many responsibilities and we get guilt ridden that we try to squeeze everything and everyone in to our diaries, when actually the key for me is to figure out who are those 20% of people in my life that truly make me feel alive? Who are the ones that really, truly count? It's not about getting rid of the others, but it's about prioritizing those 20% and actually scheduling them into your diary like you would a meeting. Because all too often, we tell our friends or our family, yeah, we must get together. We must. We must, but the must never actually happens. And so I decided to take a change. And start to apply the principles of do less and get more. It is really simple. It's that you can do anything, you just can't do everything all at once. Now that sounds incredibly lame from the perspective of it's so bloody simple. I just think that certainly from my friends, how all of us had fallen into the trap of trying to do everything, all at once, all of the time. Instead of taking a step back and thinking to ourselves, what work do I do that really makes a difference? Or what parts of my role at work are the ones that I'm best known for, where I get the best results? Now, it doesn't mean that you can go into work tomorrow and say, you know all that admin stuff, well, Shah says, I don't need to do it anymore, do less, get more. I'm going to get a promotion, not doing any of the admin work. But it probably does mean that you should analyze and reflect on where you have the biggest impact in what you're doing. And make sure that that's what you focus on first. Instead of, as a lot of us, myself most certainly do, is get caught up in the minutia of day-to-day work and business. Instead of focusing on the key areas where I'm gonna make the biggest difference. So the 80-20 principle, For me, it's 80% of your results, progress, joy, come from 20% of your work, effort, and relationships. This is key, this isn't just about work, or economics, or finance, That actually, by applying this to your entire life, that's where you have the compound effect of greater happiness, greater wealth, whatever we consider that to be, by focusing our real efforts, the areas where of our genius, the areas where we're happiest, is always gonna be where we get the best results. So you've gotta figure out where that 20% is, whether that's at work or that's at home. Who are those 20% of your friends and family? Who you're always meaning to spend time with, but you somehow end up seeing that person that is just a peripheral friend for coffee, more than you see the people that you actually really wanna see. How much of your work do you do where your real genius lies? And we all know that, because we all have our own genius. And that's not about an IQ. It's about, what do you do in your role at work, or if you're studying? What's that area where it just comes easier to you? Where it's just more natural to you? Where you just don't have to work quite as hard for it? What's that thing that people come to you to ask you for advice for at work? There'll be something more than others that people come and they, ask you you know john you know that thing you did on that tell me how to do that whatever that thing is is usually where our flow is and when we focus on that that's where you get results if we now add to that and we start to learn to truly understand time in its most finite sense because you see i think t- time is a little bit Backwards right now. We are still basing work habits on a system that was developed for the Industrial Revolution The way that we work today in certainly in this country There are some more progressive countries like Sweden and Denmark who are more advanced than we are But the kind of working hours that we've got and yes, of course I'm very aware that you know all the big FTSE companies will tell you that they do more you know working from home more flexi working than they ever used to Of course they do, but does it truly reflect the world that we operate in today, or is most of it still embedded in a very old industrial revolution type work process? And when we truly start to understand time and understand it's kind of like a bit like a a woman's handbag, you know, it will expand to what you want to fit into it. I think we are truly past those old notions of, of what time is. Of course, we still only have 24 hours in the day, just like we used to. But there are now so many different ways of working, whether you're working for yourself or you're working for somebody else. I, certainly from you know, half a million small businesses that come to our website each month, I am seeing a massive, massive difference in the ambitions of young entrepreneurs. And what I'm starting to see is... Actually, when when I started out, I'll be totally honest, my ambition as an entrepreneur was that I was going to get VC investment and I was going to IPO and I was going to exit and make all this money and I was going to be taken seriously and I was going to win business awards and that's what I wanted to do. Now, the next generation of entrepreneurs coming through, they don't even want an office. They don't want the overheads and the bricks and mortar, what they want is a core team of maybe five to ten people who are probably employed by the company, but then they want a team of 20, maybe 30 people who are outsourced all over the world because it gives them the opportunity to cherry pick people who are specialists in that one particular role without carrying all the traditional overheads of running your own business. And more and more, this is reflected on time because, If you know any entrepreneurs, or if you are one, we are workaholics by our very nature. We're not shy of hard work, but we want to work on our terms. If I want to wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning and work from 5 till 10 and not do anything till 3 o'clock, I want that to be my prerogative. And more and more, what I'm seeing from the thousands of businesses that we work with is that there is an entire sea change in the way that young entrepreneurs are thinking. And for them, it's all about one word. Freedom. They want freedom to make their own choices. They want freedom to make money doing something that they love and they're prepared to work hard to become world class at it. But they don't want to be confined by the traditional constraints of going to work at a particular hour and finishing at a particular hour or the constraints and the overheads of having a traditional office set up or investors and having people tell them what to do. More and more, the entrepreneurs coming through just want the freedom of choice and flexibility. Time will always, or our our tasks and our things that we have to do will always expand to the time available. So it's really learning how to filter through that process of what we have and what we need to do against what's gonna get us the greatest return on our time. And for me, it's about this. It's about owning your power. It's what I referenced a moment ago in terms of your genius. It's understanding what is your core power. What makes you different to the person next to you who works with you? What makes you different if you're a bookkeeper or an accountant or a web designer? If you're an economist, if you're an analyst, there will be something about you that is different. Instead of trying to be good at everything, focus on becoming world-class at your own superpower at the thing that you're most excited about at work the aspect of your job your career your role that you find easiest that you enjoy the most concentrate 80 percent of your efforts on that area and that's suddenly where whether you're running your own business you will see a massive leap in your success, in your profits, and if you work for somebody else, becoming that person who is world-class at a particular subject rather than trying to be a generalist is where you're automatically put on the fast track for promotion. It's also where you become happiest, because you're now in flow. I remember one of the worst pieces of advice that I ever heard was from a very, very famous uh, female ad exec. She ran a very big agency. And she was talking to a young 23-year-old, just out of university, super bright, super capable guy. And she said to him, Ollie, the key here in life is that from now until you're 40, you need to focus on fixing all your weaknesses. All those areas where you're not very good at, you've got to spend the next 17 years getting good at them. Because if you do that, After you're 40, you'll be really successful. I'm never one to keep my mouth shut, really. So I sat there, and I said, wow. I have to be honest, that's about the worst piece of advice I've ever heard. I said, let me tell you, if you spend the next 17 years trying to fix all your so-called weaknesses, you will lose all your strengths. But not only that, that is a surefire recipe for depression, stress, And serious amounts of unhappiness at work. Why would you want to do that? We've all got weaknesses. But spending 17 years until you're 40 trying to fix them, what, so we become like this Swiss army knife that's just mediocre at everything? Hell no, I'd rather become, you know, that single laser-focused person who, when you want them to do that, they can do that just like that. Focus on your strengths. Of course, if you know you've got key weaknesses, particularly if they affect you in your job role, you've got to find ways either to work with other people who can complement that, or maybe, actually, on those one or two core weaknesses, try to learn some new skills to help support them. But you sure as hell don't want to spend 17 years of your life trying to fix your weaknesses. It is really tempting to try to be great at everything. Certainly I know as an entrepreneur that oftentimes when you're starting out, you have to try to be good at everything because there isn't anybody else to do the jobs, right? You're rolling your sleeves up and you're getting dirty and you're trying to do everything. But there comes a point where you have to step back and you actually have to learn how to delegate. And you have to accept that even if somebody else isn't going to do the job just as good as you are, that's okay, Because the only way any of us learn is actually by doing it. So whilst it might be tempting to try to do everything, that again is a recipe for just constant stress and frustration. You end up wasting a huge amount of time and energy, whereas when you try to become world class at one thing, whatever that one thing is, all your efforts and energies are focused in the same direction. You see, trying to be good at everything is like taking one step forward whilst being pulled backwards. You're in that constant kind of, pulling and pushing and pulling and pushing and never really getting anywhere whereas when you say right that's what i'm going to do and you focus everything on moving in that direction you're naturally by the laws of logic gonna make a bigger impact what you want to do next and this is probably one of the biggest learnings from my own story my own career is build a network of like-minded people around you People talk to, when you're in business people often talk about your net worth and this and it's all based around money. But actually, my biggest value isn't my stocks, my shares, my cash, my houses, my property, it's actually my network. It's the people who support me. And if you can start to build a network of people around you, who can support you in what you do, who are world class at that, their own thing. It doesn't mean that they have to work with you, but it's that mentality. It's the mentality of a person who has made a conscious decision to be moving in the same direction as you. What you'll find is that when you want to take a risk in life, you want to change a career, you want to move to a different country, you want to go back to university and study, even though you've got a mortgage to pay, often it feels like you're walking on a tightrope. The key is that for people who walk on a tightrope, If you don't have a safety net underneath you, you're constantly focused on looking down. And because you're looking down, you start wobbling, then you fall off. But if instead you build that support network around you as your strong foundations of other people, whether they're your friends or your family, or they might be the person sitting next to you, because it's about a mindset, it doesn't mean they have to be your best friend. Oftentimes they're not. Oftentimes they're definitely not your family either because your family just wants you to stay in your comfort zone because that makes them feel comfortable too. And there's nothing wrong with that because they give you that advice out of a place of love and trying to protect you. But the reality in 2015 is there's no such thing as a comfort zone. The only comfort zone there is 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 to get comfortable being uncomfortable. And to do that, you have to step out. But you can do that without feeling like you're going to fall flat on your face. Because if you build a support network around you or underneath you, it's like walking out on that tightrope and knowing that there's a safety net. So you don't need to worry about looking down. Because you know, what's the worst that can happen? If you fall off, you're going to be just fine. So building that support network is absolutely crucial. As I said, my network is my most valuable asset. It lets me focus on what I'm great at, and not worry about everything else. Just want to touch quickly, and then I'm going to open up for Q&A, on how you can apply the same principle to different areas of your work and your life. So if you ask yourself now, doesn't, it can be work, it can be your health, it can be your friends, your family, your relationships. What is the one thing, and I focus a lot on one, because we tend to try to do two, three, five, ten things at the same time. But if there was just one thing that you could change right now to make its greatest impact, what would it be? Would it be going to the gym every day? Would it be putting yourself forward for a promotion at work? Would it be finally making the decision to set up your own business? Would it be going back and doing your PhD? What is the one thing that you could actually make a change to today or make a decision to make that change to. Instead of all this kind of woolly, wishy-washy, yeah, I'm going to think about it, yeah, maybe, and it's in the back of your head for six months, and then a year, and then before you know it, two years has passed, and you're no further forward to where you actually wanted to be. So I'm going to give you my example. My one thing was to write a book. So I didn't faff around. Instead, I decided if I'm going to do this, I'm going to go to the best person in the world, in my experience, who had that information available. And for those of you who don't know, this is a guy called Tim Ferriss. He has sold millions of books. He's most famous for a book called The 4-Hour Workweek. And in this book, he was trying to tell people, whether you believe it or not, that it's actually possible to work for just four hours a week. Now, knowing Tim as I do now, he doesn't really work four hours a week. More like 84 hours a week. But the principles were really true. The difference is, you see, when Tim chooses to only work four hours a week, he actually really does because he's automated his life and his business. But oftentimes, like most entrepreneurs with a 1,000 different ideas, he's putting in way more than four hours because actually he's not working on one thing. He's working on 10 one thing. So that immediately makes it 40 hours in itself. But he was running an event called OTK, which stands for Open the Kimono, and he promised that what he'd teach you is everything he knew about writing a best-selling book. Now, here's the thing. If you wanted to actually go to this course, not only was it $10,000 to go, but you had to apply a five-page application, and then you had to have an interview process to find out if they deemed you appropriate enough to pass over your $10,000. And then when you'd pass over your $10,000, you then had to fly to Napa and pay for all your own hotel and accommodation and everything else. So you can pretty much imagine, bearing in mind I'd never written a book in my life before. Um, I didn't even have a blog at the time. I just knew that that's what I wanted to do. Most of my family and most of my friends thought I was totally and utterly insane. Totally insane. Apart from those who were closest to me, those who were in my support network they totally knew that if I was going to make that kind of investment, then I was going to sure as hell make some pretty phenomenal connections whilst I was there, which I did, and created lifelong friendships, but that I would damn well make sure that I was going to write that book. Because now I was publicly committed to doing it, I had no choice but to show up and actually do it. So, I went to the course, and there was about 100 of us there. Nice little learner, you know, do the maths on that one for three days, not bad work, right? And I sat there and I absorbed everything like a sponge. And there was only three people from the UK there. The rest were Americans. And I am so proud to say that I think the difference between you know, us Brits and the others, was that we just grafted harder. You know, we just came back and we got our heads down. We just focused and we put the work in. And out of everybody who went on that course, aside from those who were already best sellers, I ended up selling more books than anybody else who had paid their $10,000. And lots of those people had already had best-selling books. And again, it's amazing where the opportunities open up because when you learn from somebody who has truly been there, seen it and done it, the $10,000 might seem like a lot of money, but put that into context against student fees, right? I mean, it's not really that expensive, at least, you know, I paid 10000 and within three years, I'd earned about 400000 back. So I think that's a pretty good return on investment, right? But for me, this is understanding what my one thing was and then getting truly, truly focused on it. So I didn't start to overthink what that one thing was. I didn't start to panic, well, how am I going to do this? I just thought, do you know what? What I really want to do, my one thing is I want to write a book. So how am I going to do that? How am I going to find the person who can teach me that? Whether I wanted to create an app, or I wanted to, you know, set up a tech company, or I wanted to to set up a new way of banking, whatever it was, I would have just figured out who was the person that could get me there the quickest, and I would have focused on making that happen. So, researching and getting super detailed planning, they do have their benefits. You know, I'm not saying I didn't do a little bit of planning to figure out that Tim Ferriss was the best solution, but actually, most of us tend to fall into the analysis paralysis. Right, we just keep analysing. You know, one of my best friends. She's she she works for the BBC and she's an awesome TV presenter. We've been friends ever since I was at LSE, but she's always telling me that she has to do this one thing before she can do the next thing. You know, I'll do that when I've done this. It's co- it's actually got a a proper title. It's called the If Then when syndrome and uh, i think harvard came up with this title they've done a whole paper on on how procrastination um stops even the smartest the most hardest working of us in our tracks and it's typically because of the if then when syndrome it's not because we're lazy it's because our brains are telling us if this happens Or when that happens then I'll do this so when my kids go to college I'll do that or if I get a promotion then I'll be able to afford to do the course I really want to do so we're always waiting for something else to happen before we can actually start doing what we really want to be doing and I think that's pretty illogical so ask yourself the question and then use your answers to start to create a mind map Does anybody use mind mapping at work frequently? If if you don't, I I hugely recommend it. And like everything, there's an app for that, and the app that I use is Mindnode. There's a free app, Mindnode, and then there's a paid for one, Mindnode Pro. Um, I mind map everything. If I have a business idea, I mind map it. If I want to write a new book, I mind map it. Because it it works the way my brain works, which is visually connecting. It's like all the neurons going off and connecting different aspects with different things. And you can move things around. You can start to see where things fall into place. So when you've asked yourself the question, what is the one thing that you could change? What is the one thing that you really want to do that you're not doing? And then you start to transmit it from your brain to, I'm going to call it paper, but it's probably, in most of our cases, not. It's actually to to a piece of technology, to your phone, to your iPad, to your laptop. Actually, just by doing that, you take yourself a step closer to actually making it happen. And then, this is a a, a very well-known business technique of reverse engineering. Instead of asking ourselves, okay, what's your goal? Where do you want to be? Where do you want your business to be? You know, What profit margins do you want this year? And instead of trying to work out how I get from here to there, you do it, you reverse engineer it. So what you say is that, if I'm gonna be there in three years, you reverse engineer it back to say, for that to have happened, what has to have happened by year two? Okay, so if we're in that position in year two, what has to have happened for that to be true in year one? Does that all make sense? And then you revert, and and as you get closer and closer to where you are now, you get more and more detailed. So you start to build out, you have your three year plan that you reverse engineer, And as you chunk it down, it starts off with quite big chunks, but then as you chunk it down, it gets smaller and smaller. So when you get to like a 90-day plan, or your first 100 days, as as Obama would use, you actually chunk it down very small, so you've got a very clear, detailed, almost color-by-number plan that's pretty much fail-proof if you put your work in up front to make that happen. What then happens is it's a bit like dominoes. So you push one over, and the rest start to fall. For me, it doesn't matter whether it's been setting up a business, writing books, or or doing anything else, this is a rule that I've applied ever since I was at LSE. Even coming to LSE, I started reverse engineering it. I thought to myself, if I want to get in, and I might get a C, what am I going to have to do to make that true? Well, if I didn't do anything, I can sure as hell guarantee I wouldn't be standing here today because I wouldn't have got in. Because the rules at that point, were well, there was no way I'd get in with a C. So if I wanted that to be true, what would have to have happened? Well, what would have to have happened would have been that they made an exception. So if they made an exception, what would have to have happened for them to make that? Well, I obviously would have had to have met the person who could make the exception. Well, if that's to happen, what has to happen for me to meet the person? Well, I obviously have to turn up here. And for them to be willing to do that, what has to happen? Well, I have to have a pretty convincing story, not an arrogant one but a pretty convincing one that makes them realize just how much I want to come here. And so it doesn't matter whether it's trying to get into the university of your choice. Get a new job promotion, definitely a great way for doing that. Setting up your own business or writing a book. The same principles apply, and nine times out of ten they work. And when they don't work for me, it's not that the principle didn't work, it's that I didn't do all the work. I missed the step. I didn't think through it clearly enough. I hadn't got it thought out. But when you do it, it's like having a little bit of extra armory in your tools. And then it's about taking focus action. So when you know what it is that you have to do, it's making sure that you actually take action on it. So again, going back to coming here, I knew what I had to do but that was great. I reverse engineered and I figured out that if I wanted to get in and I might get see then what I had to do was get an exception. If I was to get an exception, then I had to find the person who could give me the exception. And then if I met them, what would I have to say? And how Well, that would all be great, but what if I knew all that and then didn't do anything? I still wouldn't be here. I had to take the hardest action, which was to start. But the key about starting is it creates momentum. So the moment that I got on the train from where I lived at the time in Hertfordshire and spent two hours travelling in to London, the moment I actually walked out my front door, I'd kind of started the momentum. And all the way coming up here, I had no idea what the outcome would be, but I was already closer to it than I would have been if I hadn't stepped out my front door. So the moment that you start to create the momentum, action will follow. But you can have the best ideas in the world, but they won't amount to anything if you don't take the action. So it's about the power of simplicity. You know, we've all got so much, more and more every day going on physically and mentally. We're bombarded with text messages and DMs on Facebook and Twitter. And then we've got emails and then we've got phone calls and then we might have messages on Instagram. I mean, it just is endless, the amount of data that is thrown at us on a daily basis, let alone the apparently 3,000 marketing messages that we see every single day. So how do you find simplicity within it? That type of clutter kills our creativity. And it's so easy to get distracted in it. It's so easy to get caught up answering things reactively all the time. And soon enough you find you've wasted three, four hours of your day. And none of that has been spent on the one thing that you know will make the biggest impact on what you want to do and who you want to be. Instead, four hours have just disappeared on stuff that was being directed at you. I follow a rule of pruning. I talk about this a lot in the book. So in the book, we have tons and tons of exercises. It's as interactive as I could get it so that it was really powerful. And I have kind of a simple saying which is do it delegate it or ditch it and it's essentially about if you've got a task to do you either do it because you want to do it and you're the best person to do it or you just want to do it that in itself is enough for you to do it you delegate it because you know it needs to get done but actually you are not the best person to do it there is somebody else who could do it Or, as I tend to find in my life, 50% of most of my tasks just need to be ditched. They've been there for over a week. If you have things to do on a to-do list that's been there for more than a week, I guarantee if you just wiped them all off today, you'd forget what they were. Because if they were really that important to you, you would have done them already. But what happens is all these to-dos at home, at work, everywhere, just becomes like a chain that we carry around with us. And that makes it even harder for us to be productive and get everything done. So just think about it. It's very, very simple. You either do it because you want to do it, you do it because you want to do it and you're the best person to do it. You delegate it because you know it needs to get done, but there is somebody better who could do it than you. Or you just forget about it altogether. You recognize that actually all of us put a whole load of shit on our plates that we actually don't need. And the best way is just to get rid of it. Um, start with the physical and then move on to the mental, that's usually a good way, or the clutter in your house, in your office, on your desk. And use the principles that you've learned to get at, to the heart of what you really want. And then, as I said, you do it, you ditch it or you delegate it. How many of you have a to-do list of some description, you need to use an app? You, how many just use your brain, it's just in your brain? How does that work for you? So for some of us, we remember the thing. Actually, in some ways, your brain is the best to-do list because i tell you what happens with your brain naturally. Your brain naturally remembers what it wants to remember, right? So your brain will naturally tell you the things that it wants you to do and all the other things just get forgotten about. Whereas the to-do lists that we write down that include fixing the leaking pipe in the kitchen that's just driving you nuts to writing the presentation for the 4.8 million new tender that you've got with the local council. They, funnily enough take up the same amount of space in our brain, right? So, as I said, how many of you have got things that have uh, a week? Anybody got stuff? Anybody got stuff that's two weeks old? Anybody got stuff that's longer than two weeks old? Oh, my, Just see, just look around, you everybody putting their hands up. That kind of shit doesn't need to be there. Just get rid of it. Fuck that shit, move on. There's something else more interesting to do, I promise you. Get rid of anything that's more than two weeks old because if it was really important, I promise you, you would have done it by now. And in the one in the million chance, in the one in a million chance that you write something off that was actually really important, what do you think will happen? Who said it will come back? It will come back. Absolutely so. It will just come back because it's important, right? It will follow you. It will show right back up. And the stuff that's not important that you got rid of will just stay disappeared. So you've got three choices. You do it right now, you ditch it, or you delegate it. That's it. No more complicated than that. I think that, you know, I've spent my career working with accountants and lawyers. Any accountants in the room? Any lawyers in the room? I love lawyers, I have to say. I do, I genuinely do, but my my favorite lawyers and my favorite accountants are the ones who don't feel they need to talk in psychobabble. They don't need to use the kind of language that they think makes them justify their extortionate fees. And that they can instead just talk to you in a normal language that you understand. Now, you know, I came to LSE, so I can't be that dumb. But equally, you know, I'm not necessarily averse in every single technicality of the legal system, or particularly in the accounting system. And so this might sound simple. Of course it's simple. Most things that are actually work in life are simple simple things actually work it's crazy but it's true so my number one piece of advice are you ready for this this is this is worth a tweet (laughs) this is it I get asked all the time what's my number one piece of business advice (laughs) hire a cleaner Now, why do I say this? Do I actually really mean a cleaner? Well, in my case, yes, I do. I'm pretty proud to say that I've had one since I was 21. Why am I proud of that? Because I'm proud of the fact that, at 21, I recognized that if there was somebody that I could pay that could do a job better than me, it would allow me to focus on the stuff that I could do really well. So, whatever the cleaner is for you, find that out and free up your time because I can guarantee you, you know, how many parents have we got in the room? When you're juggling relationships and family and work and all these commitments, wouldn't you rather get back the eight hours you might spend a week cleaning, ironing, all that crap stuff? Spend it on yourself, spend it working on your business, spend it with your family, spend it with your friends. There's so many more things you can do than iron a shirt. Don't do anything that's not in your area of genius. I've nearly finished, so I want to open up to Q&A. This often sounds really implausible, because people say to me, but how do I do that? Shall I work for somebody else? Start by making sure that you're in a role that focuses on your area of genius. The area where you are absolutely in flow, where you love what you're doing. And if you don't, start working on a plan how you're gonna move across to a career, or a position, or a role that allows you to do this. This is the single thing that you can make a change to, if you're not already doing this, that will bring you the biggest change, not just in your day-to-day happiness, but fundamentally in your overall wealth. Because when you start to operate from this position, you operate from your highest power. And what I mean by that is, I'm not talking about some woo-woo highest power, Um, Sorry for anybody in the room who's a bit Um, (laughs) woo-woo, I am just a tiny bit, but what I really mean is this is when you're strong, when you know you can walk away from a deal, because you know how good you are, because you know the results that you can get. You don't need to negotiate, you're not trying to screw anyone over, but when you operate from this perspective, you know what you're worth and you'll stand up for it. You've got to use all the time and energy that you can to free up to focus on the things that you're really great at. So you start to hire the cleaner, you start to prune your tasks, you start to delegate, or you start to just get rid of all the shit on your plate that you don't need. You start to think about the 80-20 rule and apply it to every area of your business. Where can I focus my time, energy and effort that's going to bring me the greatest reward? At home, at work and in every area of my life. The pitfall here is you've got to make sure that in doing this, you don't just build up a to-do list because you're forgetting about everything else. You've got to put systems in place, which means you've also got to learn, and I haven't got a slide for this, but it's a really important lesson. It's a whole other topic, but you've got to learn how to say no so that you don't get rid of it all only to build it back up a few days later. Because most of us, there'll be a hell of a lot of things on our to-do list that aren't actually our to-dos. They're other people's. Somebody's asked you to do something, and particularly us Brits, we have a tendency without even thinking about it, just to say yes. Can you help me with that? Yes. Can you meet me for a coffee? Yes. Can you look at this? Yes. I'm not suggesting that you don't want to help people, but just be conscious of when you say yes and when you say no. Because every time you say yes to something that you don't really want to do, it takes away your ability to say yes to something that you really do want to do. So a to-do list should never have more than three items at a time. Who said this? Warren Buffett. So, you know, he must be right. He's, he's, he, he's definitely uh, labeled the whole success thing, right? And he, he has a very clear view. Um, he, he did a fantastic podcast. I can't remember the name of it where he talked about this in depth. He said that if people have more than three things on their to-do list, he starts to worry about their ability to get anything done. Apparently when he hires at the highest level, he actually wants to see people's to-do lists and he wants them to explain to them why they're on there. And if they have more than three things to focus on, he says what will happen is immediately they won't have the time, energy or effort to do any of those things to their full effect. So try wherever possible to never have more than three things. Don't spread your energy or dissipate it by just doing a little bit here and there. You've got to be ruthless. Complete a task or just simply get it off your plate. You want action, not motion. They're different things, right? Motion, you know, we're all here, oh, yes, just in motion. It's just going round and round. It could be going round and round, but actually not getting anywhere. So you want action, which means that you're getting a result at the end of it. So my final slide before I'm super happy to open up to any questions you like. You can do anything. You just can't do everything all at once. Thank you very much, everybody, for having me this evening. Thank you very much.
0: Um, We've got um, we've got some time for questions now. If we could just, um, we've got a few roving mics, so if you could just uh, state your affiliation when you when you ask your question and just remember to, it's a question or a statement. Somebody over there? It? It's fine. Oh, it. um, th- I, I absolutely appreciated your talk. My question is in this global village that we live in, this world of global village, have you found cultural differences uh, impeding some of the issues that you believe in strongly?
1: Oh, I, I, so, so the question was have I found... Um, Cultural differences in the beliefs that I have around how we work So not only do I think there are cultural differences But actually I think there are gender differences still and it does depend on what country you're working in So when we do work in countries like Denmark you see that a lot less both culturally and gender There's far less of a divide But again, I think the world is dramatically changing because technology has Brought down a lot of those barriers, so even if you're in China and you are being monitored by the government about what you're allowed to see, for every barrier that they put up, there's 10 young students breaking down those barriers. And therefore, what happens is the world is learning and growing at a far more aligned pace than it ever has before because information whether it's world events whether it's economic theories whether it's new business breakthroughs are actually being shared instantaneously so in the past you might have a breakthrough in one country and all of that IP and that knowledge and that expertise was pretty much wrapped up and kept there until they wanted to share it but now that's not true that you know we truly are in a knowledge economy Thank you for that talk, Shah. Um, Basically, I really like your statement of you can do anything, but you just can't do everything all at once because I find my problem is having too many business ideas and too many cool things I want to do, too many things I might be good at. Anybody else have that problem, too many ideas? Pretty Um, much all of us have it. So I think in terms of prioritizing, I just wanted to
0: find out if you had any hints or tips for how to prioritize what order might be best to do things in.
1: Sure. So it depends on... um, I, I tend to start with financials. So which of those areas is going to get you cash positive first, right? I start from there. So um, I, after looking at that, I, I tend to think, OK, again, if I ask myself, if I could only do one thing, what would my one thing be? What would it be? If I said to you, you can only do one of your ideas, just one, that's it. What would you choose? You have to answer that. Even you know, you. know Your brain can't help but answer that question, even if you only ask it to yourself. It will arrive with the answer. And then what you've got to say is, okay, so that's what I would do. Now, is that the one that's going to be cash-generative first? You know, the other tip I would say is, if you've got tons of ideas, you know, focus on one at a time and make something successful before you start trying to do the second, third, fourth, or fifth one. And something else that's always worked really well for me Um, And you tend to find a lot of quote unquote successful entrepreneurs do this, is I wake up at five o'clock every day. I have clarity of thought between five and seven that is hard to find the rest of the day. I I get more done between five and seven than probably the next eight hours. So when do you go to sleep? Good question, (laughs) never, no. Um, I tend to be in bed by 11, so I'm lucky. I can get by on six hours sleep. If I start cutting it down to five, I'll survive. But I'm probably a little bit grumpy. I definitely don't need eight hours sleep. I'm I'm convinced that that some you know mattress company invented that idea. <laughs> have we got a mic, uh, the gentleman? Also, has anybody got questions at the top? Put your hands up because I know that they've got loads down here. But gentlemen, there.
0: Yeah. Uh, my question is, do you um, do you have anyone you are accountable to, like a coach or a PA? who basically looks at, at your to-do list and checks, you know, how many things have you done and what, what are you avoiding and that I, kind of I stuff? I do,
1: I do. I actually have the most amazing PA in the world. She, she arranged everything for tonight. And if I could put her on a 10-year contract with no exit clause, I would. Um, it's amazing. The people that you have in your business to support you make all the difference. Uh, it just makes a massive difference do I don't have a coach but I belong to a number of mastermind groups both here and in the States that truly hold me accountable because the key is you always want to be looking up and it's not that I'm not grateful you know there's a, there's a, there's a, a big thing around mindfulness and gratitude right now which I'm a big believer in but I'm also a big believer in whilst I'll be super grateful for where i am today that doesn't mean that i don't want to still grow it doesn't mean that i don't want to still stretch and challenge myself i think that the wisest man or woman is the one who continues to learn and the one who continues to stretch themselves so i always want to be surrounded you know there was a great saying at an event i went to once and it said if you're the smartest person in the room you're in the wrong room we had another question one there and then gentleman in the orange It's always good wearing orange. You always get picked out, right? (laughs) Hi. uh, You've talked a lot about the 80-20 rule and things like that, and how you've applied it to um, real life and business and things like that. But you've also talked about uh, like concentrating on certain things and things. So, isn't that? Would you argue that the why did you go for the 80-20 rule rather than say specialization, which might seem to be more applied to the kind of things you've been talking about? Because I think the difference is specialization applies to one area, which is typically work. Um, I I found it difficult. I'm a big believer in that, and something that I've pursued. Albeit, I have specialised in different things at different times. But, but when I'm doing something, I'm all in. For me, particularly when you're writing a book, I wanted to write a book that fitted into this new category that Waterstones called smart thinking. And it's a cross between business and personal development with an emphasis on statistics and research rather than just woo-woo concepts. And for me, the 80-20 principle... Applied to every area of somebody's life rather than just the work aspect because whilst work is like a massively important Aspect of our lives. It's not the only aspect and I wanted to be able to have an impact beyond just our working day Gentleman in the orange
0: Hi um, Thanks for the talk um, How do you think businesses and entrepreneurs in particular can help to combat the growing ecological crisis we face
1: God, we face so many crises. Um, I I know you've just mentioned the ecological crisis, but I'll give give you an example, um, if if I may, if I can have your permission to do that, of something that's not necessarily more relevant but more topical. Um, I do an awful lot of speaking. I run a lot of big events, and they're very, very profitable events. We can make 100 grand in a day on on some of our events. And I have a lot of friends who do similar things, different topics. And... um, Facebook can, can be an interesting thing, and I was on a break during a, a conference that I was running, but I wasn't speaking, I had somebody else speaking at this point, and so I quickly checked my Facebook, and, and I saw one of my friends, who's a very successful speaker, post the picture of the poor child um, on the Turkish beach, and he said he really doesn't usually post this stuff on Facebook, because... It's just, he's quite a private person. He doesn't share his private things and his private feelings. But he actually had a son exactly the same age. And he said that he just was tearing his hair up because he didn't know what he could do as an individual to make a difference. And I had just been reading about, maybe somebody can tell me what the name of this is, the the family in Germany who had spent 8 million of their own money to um, build a boat off the shores in order to be able to save the refugees. So I sent him the link. So he... Sends me a message back saying, but what can we do? So I said, well, I'm sure 8 million is probably not enough to keep it going. So why don't we collectively just do something, put on an event, and every single penny that we raise will have multiple speakers. We will pay out of our own pockets for the venue, for the hire, for the AV, for everything else. Every penny we raise should go to the charity. But also, how many people can we reach? Because between us, we could probably reach 100,000 people. So... I think what an entrepreneur is able to do you can help financially whether it's the refugee crisis or it's ecology But actually you have two platforms you have a financial platform that is often very much needed But at least as needed if not more needed is the ability to reach more people and educate them because in my experience and in my view more often than not the reason why things go wrong is through ignorance and misunderstanding. Of course there's bad people in the world, but the reality is that the most things that go wrong is not because somebody deliberately planned for it to go that way, but because they didn't know any better, but because the governments didn't take action. Go back to the difference between action and motion. Quite frankly, what I think this government was doing up until a couple of days ago was ticking boxes and going through the motion. Suddenly there was a huge outcry and they had to take action. Entrepreneurs are fucking brilliant at taking action. That's what we can do. We can take action. Should we be drilling in Alaska? I don't think so. No, my personal opinion. I think that's a very bad idea. I think there's many other ways of, of, of fueling the world. Um, we had another question over here, I think. Oh, sorry. A question at the top. Sorry, in the white shirt.
0: If you uh, were running the OT course about uh, best-selling books, which will be your tip number one?
1: My number one tip for writing a best-selling book? Was that your question? My number one tip for writing a best-selling book? Okay, So I just want to be clear. There's a difference between writing a best-selling book and creating a best-selling book. So what's the difference? The thing is, there are so many books out there that are absolutely brilliant that nobody has ever read. That's a fact. I'm telling you. There are way better books than mine on the market who have sold way fewer copies than I have. Now, I'm not saying that to be funny or kind of, you know, uh, not, you know knock myself down for hope for somebody to tell me, oh, no, your book's been... It's true. So half of it is about the marketing. So have you got my book? I'm going to show you. This is my theory for anybody who ever wants to write a book. Like most things in life... Your cover matters, right? So if you can look back at my Stop Talking, Start Doing, I had a cover and a title that jumped off the shelf. Because until you're a recognized author, people don't really go to Amazon to look for you, right? Yes, yeah, sure, you might go to Amazon to look for somebody that you've already bought their books from before. But if you're a first-time author like I was, nobody's ever going to go, oh, yeah, let me go and see if that girl called Char, what's her name now, has got a book out. Why would they do that? They wouldn't know. So, when you start out, the only hope you've got is that people buy your book from the traditional old school bookshop. And so, what happens is your book's here usually, so the spine has to jump out. It has to make somebody want to pick it up. So, what happens is somebody goes, Oh, that looks interesting. I'll pick it up. And then they look at the cover and they go, Oh, I like that. And they flick it open when they flick it open we are in a time of inhalable content whether you write blogs or you write books or you write reports or you write presentations you are in the world of inhalable content that means somebody has to pick this up and be able to look at it and inhale a piece of content and get something out of it not necessarily all in one go but the principles still the same you've got to have content that people pick it up Again, I seriously mean this, whether it's a presentation or a pitch or a proposal, it's got to be the same thing. Scrap the, you know, 100 words on each PowerPoint page, three words. I mean, you'll see my presentations are a very word count low. And the, books, the book is, I mean, you know, but with the book is interspersed with a lot of graphics. And then you want to flick to the back And people will automatically look at who's giving you reviews and testimonials. So it's as much a marketing process as it is. a. You only get longevity by writing best-selling books. But you can create a best-selling book even without great content. How much time have we got for questions? Uh, We've got another five minutes. Maybe we can just, yeah. Okay. Okay. So one, two, three, four. Any more up there? Okay, Mm -hmm. we've got quite a few. Okay. Gentlemen at the back. Well, one there and one there.
0: Maybe we can take Later um, a few questions in one go and then you can answer them. Yeah, together.
1: that's fine. Okay. Hi, I really enjoyed the talk. Um, <clears throat> I'm a big fan of um, Tim Ferriss as well. He talks about, um, you know, the master of all trades. uh, uh Yeah, that one. Um, and uh, he's talking about, he gives the example
0: of Leonardo da Vinci, uh, an anatomist, inventor, painter, etc.
1: Um, He applied principles that he learned in different fields and then that allowed him to excel in other fields. Does that not um, go counter to being laser focused in one area? No, because when Tim, Tim takes all of that research and all that knowledge and then he makes a decision. What is the one thing that I'm going to focus on today, this hour, this week? That's it, nothing else. So he may take all the bits from here and there and mash it all up together to give him the best chance to succeed in whatever that is. But for example, when he took up, I think he took up Tango, he did nothing else but Tango for like 12 hours a day for three weeks, and then became world-class at it. When he was becoming world-class at Tango, he wasn't thinking about how he was going to write a book called The Four-Hour Chef. He wasn't thinking about how he was going to become world-class at something else. He was focused on that one thing. It, it, it depends on what it is. What I try to do is be present in the moment. So if I'm with friends and family, try to be present there, put my phone off. If I'm writing a proposal, then everybody else can shut the fuck up and don't talk to me, because if you do, I'm going to get distracted. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm easily distracted by the next shiny thing, and I need to get my head down and focus. And the same is true. Like if you're writing, does anybody in here blog? A couple of people. Okay. If you do, or if you create any content, even if you write proposals for work. Batch it up, you know, like batching, like making cookies, like do it in a batch. Don't think oh, I'm going to, I need to write a blog tomorrow so I'll do it tonight. That never happens. Put a dedicated time aside, like whether it's one Friday a month or one you know, three hour slot on a Tuesday morning and just do that one thing. So batch your tasks together, whatever they are, it's much easier to accommodate it. I know there's a gentleman there. Yep, there. <coughs> I'll
0: take they. a
1: couple from up the top. You say you need to be comfortable or get comfortable being uncomfortable. What are you uncomfortable about at the moment? You look quite comfortable. <laughs> I'll tell you, I, look like, well, I, tell you what, I walked into the green room and um, <laughs> I was with my awesome PA, Julie. I walked in and went, fuck, no pressure then? Because as I walked in, on the wall is pictures. Of Clinton and Desmond Tutu and Mandela and Sheryl Sandberg, who've all spoken LSE, right? And I think so. For a moment, I got uncomfortable, thinking, "Oh my God!" I, you know, I better, I better better make sure I produce tonight. Um, I have got so comfortable being uncomfortable that I've just forgotten what it's like. I mean, really, I have. I just, I don't, I don't know any other way. You know, if whatever it is I want to do, I just put everything into it and just do
0: it. One there, one there. Hey, thank you very much. Um, Firstly, oh, cheers. Hey, so I just wanted to ask, if I had a time machine and I took a copy of your first book and took it back and gave it to you when you were starting out in your career, do you think it would have changed your path? And if so, how?
1: Oh, great question. So what's your name? George. George, thanks, George. Um, Do I think it would have changed? Well, do you know what? I think I wrote that book because of who I've been. And actually, I wrote that book. I mean, I'm sure none of this applies to none of you. But I had friends who would tell me that they wanted to stop smoking, they wanted to lose weight, they wanted to start their own business, they wanted to move to the south of France, they wanted to get married, they wanted to get divorced, a multitude of things they wanted to do. And then a year later, what do you think would happen? You'd have the same conversation. And they hadn't made any progress. And they would always say to me, I don't understand. why, why you, You're always saying you're going to do something, then just go and do it. And I'm like, well, what else do you do? And the thing is, is that they're more concerned about it not working. So what stops them is going back to that whole comfort thing. They, they, they keep talking, and they don't do for fear that if they do, it won't work. Whereas my attitude is, well, tons of things I've done haven't worked, who cares? There's tons of things I've done that have worked. How do I want to go through my life? And this is a choice we all have. Do we want to go through our lives as like bystanders looking on and get into a point where we look back at our life and say, I coulda, I woulda, I shoulda. Fuck that shit. I'm not doing that. I'm just going to do it. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. If I can learn along the way, then that's what I'm going to do. So just, um, Thank you. I think we, we have time
0: for this one last question. Okay. Um, my name's Parish. Hello, and Parrish. Hi. I always say the difference between ordinary and extraordinary is that little bit extra. And believe me, I think for everyone will agree, you've been so much brilliant and that extra. And I've been to many, many lectures. Oh,
1: thank yeah.
0: you. And, thank
1: you. Um, thank you. It, tru- it truly comes from my heart, and I hope that's what comes across tonight, is that actually... Yeah. I feel it an absolute privilege to have been invited here because this is where my whole journey started. And if it wasn't for this place and the people, you know, I can't even remember what the admissions tutor's name was. But by God, if she hadn't believed in me and trusted me, I wouldn't be here.
0: Just one thing. I always say winners never quit and quitters never win. What do you think is one of your winning ingredient or secret for everybody maybe? Just a oh, winning. Winning mantra or something.
1: What's my, what's my winning mantra? I, I think I have more than a few. So, so how about some top tips? Wake up at 5 a.m., right? Seriously, I know you're going to hate me for it. If you do it and you're on Twitter, you can tweet me at 5 a.m. and I'll reply, I promise. Or you can, you can even, I think I've got about 200 left friends on friends of Facebook that I'm allowed So You can even reach out to me. You'll get a message back, right? So here's some top tips. Wake up at 5 a.m. Truly believe you are the sum of the five people you spend the most time with. I didn't come up with that. You've heard that a million times before. It's absolutely true. If you don't ask, you sure as hell don't get. There are always opportunities, no matter what our story is, no matter where we've come from, no matter what adversities and troubles and challenges we've had. By asking for help, not only do you allow yourself to progress further, you also allow somebody else to feel good that they're able to help you. And I guess the final one I'd leave you with is if you give more than you have, you will always receive more than you need. Thank you very much, thank you, thank you. Thank you very much, thanks a lot.